and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you decided who to vote for yet? For many of us, the choice, one way or the other, has been clear, perhaps for quite some time. For others, it's a choice they may not make until they stand before their ballot on Tuesday. Have you decided? Choosing the next president is a message taught by lead teacher Randy Pope and covers Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Thank you for joining us today. Our Father in heaven, we are going to ask you now that you would be our teacher, that you truly would grant us to find from your word that which would honor you, bless us, and end up being a benefit to the world in which we live. And so, Father, give us open minds and hearts, particularly as we delve into a controversial arena where we have differing opinions about many things. Grant you to be honored, we ask, in the great name of our Savior Jesus, amen. I'm going to start with a definition of the word homogeneous. I think we all know pretty much what it means, but it's been defined as composed of parts or elements that are the same kind. If people looked at our congregation uh, from a political perspective, I think that they would say we are a very homogeneous people. As Lee Corso has so often said on ESPN game day, not so fast, my friend. Hold on. I think you would be amazed how much on both sides of the aisle that people vote in this particular church. Though that's not as big a difference as probably the largest of all, and that is in the political arena, It's the differing among those that would call themselves conservatives. Those that would say we are looking as evangelical, Bible-believing people to do what God would have us to do in the life of our political world. Where we differ so much has to do with the role that they see that their church should play in the political process and what their pastor should or should not be doing during that process. We have some legal issues, obviously, that we want to obey and follow, and for that reason, we wouldn't do certain things that most of us would agree we shouldn't do. There is a rising contingency of people who are saying, oh, break it, violate it, let's go. This is a a triage situation, we gotta do what we have to do, and whatever the cost, let's do it. I don't agree with that, but I think it's more from a biblical perspective, we need to think what is the role of the church and the pastor of that church in the political season? I will suggest to you that the pastor's job and the church's leadership of that that ministry is to make sure that in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, that the focus is on the truth of God's Word and the liberating story of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. That is the, that's the primary focus of the church in its teaching ministry. And so, though we certainly teach truth and, and moral issues, absolutely, but as they relate to the gospel, 
Not simply, here's what we got to know and this is what we got to do. Here's what we got to know, here's what we got to do. Now, you got to bring in the story of the gospel in the midst of it. It's not an either or, it's a both and. The reality is, though, that the story of Jesus is what liberates. It's not going to be a political process that liberates. It's Jesus that liberates. And we believe that as his followers. Not only does he liberate us, but he gives us moral ability. And the moral ability that men and women, children get as they come to faith in Christ and grow in him is the very thing that enables us to resist things such as murder, theft, sexual immoralities. I don't know how many of you read World Magazine, wonderful magazine. Marvin Olasky, the editor there who so often has an editorial a month or two back, I thought spoke it well when he said, you know, the reality is when there's no gospel, which is the case in many churches that are even Bible-believing, there's no emphasis on the work of Jesus and his liberating work. But when there is no gospel, there's no moral ability. When there is no moral ability, there is immoral behavior, and with the rise of immoral behavior comes larger government. Much of the debate in the political world today is about the size of government and what is its role and its, uh, what should its limitations be and so forth. I think we understand as you are seeing a, a, a greater number of, of uh, fatherless children in our society, what happens? There's going to be a rise of um, social workers and welfare payments. Let there be a rise in theft and what's going to happen? There's going to be need to be more and more police. Government grows. Well, the pastor's job is not to, to preach political sermons. We know that. It's not even to preach moral stance messages. This is what we believe, and this is what we hold to, and this is what we must do. But it is beyond that. It is to preach the gospel of Christ, as it has to do with justification, how we come to know him, and sanctification, how we grow in him. I will tell you this. When people sit under a ministry where that is done faithfully, with the balance of God's truth and word, people vote correctly. There are exceptions, I know. But for the most part, that takes care of itself. I think it is the job of the Christian, as we independently or collectively with other Christians, from Monday through Saturday are saying politically, God, this is what I need to be doing and I'm going to fight for the freedoms that we believe in and we're going to push and we're going to do all that is appropriate and right. And when that's done, you don't need your preacher to do it. The Christian community does it. Very similar to what we've seen in the life of church otherwise. Pastor, you do the pastoring. Pastor, you do the this. Pastor, you do that. And we say, no, no, why don't we equip the saints to do the work of ministry and as citizens of this land and citizens of heaven, we go out and I am so proud of many, many in this church that do that so faithfully and so well. Now, having said that, I'd like to, before we get into the teaching of God's Word, I'd like to give a strong caution to those among us that would uh, consider self to be strong conservative. Often those that have the highest moral and biblical standards. I understand that. Not across the board, but often be the case, certainly within the evangelical community. I would suggest that we ask ourselves some very important questions as we walk through this season. 
One question would be, what, what is my greatest longing in the midst of this political season? What do I truly long for? Not just who do I want to win, but what am I really longing for? The question of what is motivating my political zeal? For many, it's not an issue, is there political zeal? The question is, why is there political zeal? Or maybe another way of thinking about it this way, if, if I lose, from my perspective, the election on this coming Tuesday, what is my greatest disappointment? And what I'm suggesting is that we start thinking not about what we do so much, but what is the motive for that which we do. For instance, do you realize that the United States, this will be a shock to some, but I think it's very supportable. I mean, absolutely, I mean, case closed as far as I'm concerned. Could be wrong. Rarely am. No, I'm wrong. But I think it's a, it's a given. The United States was not begun as a Christian nation. I keep hearing, we used to be a Christian nation. We used to be a Christian nation. Our forefathers did not intend us to be a Christian nation. Because we did have people who were our forefathers of this nation who were not Christians, but such a large number were. What was asked for and sought for was freedom of religion. And you can look at everything our forefathers did, and you're not going to find Jesus Christ in the midst of it. You'll see God. You'll see Creator. In God we trust, Yes. Our creator, creator has endowed us with certain rights. And they were certainly coming from a very theistic posture saying, you've got to bring religion into life. But what they were hoping for was a level playing field, which is being erased in our day and time. They said, give us a level playing field. We have the word of God. We have the gospel. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll win that war. Just give us a level playing field. And let anybody, as theists, come in and, and live their religion in this land of freedom. That's what they were after. And the Christians wanted the ability to propagate the gospel and to do it in an appropriate way. And so sometimes I fear that many of us that are carrying the conservative zeal of politics are often doing so with the idea that really what we're after is peace, and we're, we're looking for, you know, prosperity, and we want to, everything to be good for us, and perhaps would go four years, election to election, and never share the Christ with whom we claim that's why we want and need a level playing field. So we have to be careful, and we have to check what is our motive. As James puts it in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And the intention here of the Christian community should be religious or uh, political zeal, yes. Vote according to biblical standards and values, yes. But why? It's so that we might see God's kingdom bear upon this earth in a strong way that people might be blessed. Now, having maybe offended some of our best conservatives, Let's see to what degree I can, perhaps or not can, because I don't desire to, but perhaps will, offend our less conservative and even politically speaking liberal friends. 
Though the majority of our church may well be, as well as our community, on one side of the aisle, you need to know that your church is not on any side of the aisle. We do not say we are Republican. We do not say we're Democrat. We do not say we're for any particular candidate. The furthest we ever go is to say these are the members of our church that may be running for office. You make your choice. We don't endorse anybody. The very, I tell this story often in the Q&A session of our inquirers, but I was actually called the, the uh, week before the Sunday prior to the, to the presidential election a number of years ago. I got a phone call at my home, and it was from the, from the uh, uh, I think it was the, the head of the, the such-and-such committee of that particular um, presidential committee, and said, we want our candidate to be at your church, perimeter church, on Sunday before the election. Would you be all right with that? I said, well, I'd be happy with that. In fact, your candidate is my candidate of choice. And I said, I would be happy to have them here. And they said, well, Wonderful. There's going to be a lot of attention, obviously, with media and so forth and the security. And, uh, and so, but we would just love for you, if you would, just to uh, introduce him uh, to the congregation. If you just let him say a word of greeting to your congregation, I said there won't be a way he'll be mentioned. I won't even recognize him, but we'd love to have him come to our church. <laughs> now, obviously, he didn't come to our church, and I knew he wouldn't come to our church on that basis, which was fine with me. Because I said, you know, even if we're not endorsing, how much does it say we are? We don't even want to, we don't want to get that close to it. Because that's not what we're about. But that's what Christians are about. And we should do our job. The reality is, you can look at either side of the aisle. And neither are, neither are going to be. This is a fallen world with fallen people. It's not a Christian organization that's working and so you have people that are in both sides of the aisle that you say, that doesn't represent God's interest. Sometimes I wonder if one side of the aisle is more like the Pharisee and the other one more like the uh, tax gatherer. You say, which, which does God love the most? Well, so no, we wouldn't say we're one or the other, and we're not going to do that. But every person has the right and responsibility personally to make their choice. Now, in saying that, I want you to know that the message I'm about to teach, which will be very brief, it doesn't need to be long, but what I'm about to teach is going to be a message that I've given at this same time in other years before political election through the years. From time to time, I've gone to this text. And I go to this text because I don't really know of another text to go to that really in any way kind of addresses our responsibility as we go to the polls. I want us to have a Christian and biblical world and life view on all areas, politics included, so appropriate to teach this. But, but the text that I'm going to use here, I've used before. And what's so strange is, after you hear me say, we're not on one side of the aisle or the other, by what I teach, you will say, yes, you are. By what you said, you are saying you are on this side of the aisle. And in doing so, I'm saying, not fair, because there have been many a time that I've used this text many years ago among the same church, and at the end of the teaching, people would come up and say, which one are you voting for? They couldn't tell, given the same teaching here. So it's not that we're changing up here. No, no, no. It's the political world is changing. And so I hope you understand, same teaching, same teaching. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. 
We're going to look at verses 14 through 20. I want you to bear in mind as you're looking up the text that coming out of Deuteronomy here, we're talking about a theocracy. Theocracy means rule by God. And this is soon to be a God-ordained monarchy. Now, a monarchy refers to a, uh, a sovereign leader who is over a people. One sovereign leader. And now God is saying, we're moving from theocracy to a monarchy, and I'm going to have my leader lead our people. However, you, the people of this nation of Israel, have to choose that person. You have to discern rightly who that person is. And then you'll put that person into that position. So there's responsibility. And so this is the teaching to the people of Israel to say, here is what you need to be looking for in your leader of a monarchy called Israel. Folks, we are not Israel. We're not the people of God as a nation. We are a people made up of some people of God, but it's not his people as Old Testament Israel was. And therefore, we have to be careful that we don't apply tit for tat exactly. No, not at all. I do think there's some great wisdom to be found in what God's heart leans for in the leader of his people as what we should be wanting for the leader of our people. And so I'm going to walk through four requirements for Israel's king. I want us to pay close attention to this, obviously, as it applies to our election. But folks, I hope you understand this. That is the smaller teaching. It's the smaller story of this text. The larger story of the text, which is in its context, will tell us that this was the choosing of one who would be the forerunner of our Savior, Jesus. That God would put somebody on his throne over national Israel and it would be through the lineage of this one that we would have our King Jesus to be born who is now reigning over the universe. He reigns in the heavenly. His kingdom has come. It's still to come in a fuller expression where there'll be no sin, but he still reigns or he reigns now. And this is the forerunner. This is a type of Jesus that we see as David would ultimately be the one to fit the description that he is now laying out here. So we'll look first at the smaller story, find some application, and then close, make sure we look at the bigger story. So if you have your outline, notice that it says, number one, God must have chosen him first. Now, let me mention the pronoun him. It has, it has great relevance to the Old Testament monarch leader because it's to be David, ultimately, though Saul precedes him, David's to be the one through his lineage that Christ will come. And we know, therefore, him is appropriate. As we apply this to us, we have, we have two primary candidates, and those two candidates, both male, therefore, easy to say him now. But understand this, a woman could be the president of the United States. There's no biblical mandate that says that the president should have to be a man. But I'm still going to use the pronoun him because this in its context is referring to the one that should be chosen by Israel. God must have chosen him first. Verses 14 and 15, let's read this. It says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. And that's, that's not correct in, in terms it shouldn't be like all others. It would be different. 
So he says, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Now, the ideal of ideals, that we would have leadership in our land who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are prompted by the Holy Spirit, who are convicted by sin, who think, I want to follow the truth. We don't always have that option. And so we're certainly saying that the ideal would be no foreigner, no, but, but the truth of it is not always the option. Not always the option. I certainly believe, as so many of the great Christian statesmen through the year have declared in many different ways, would far prefer somebody who might not truly be a follower of Jesus, but who truly holds to and embraces many, much of the biblical foundations and truth that we hold to as Christians versus somebody who, on the other hand, who says, well, I'm not a Christian, or I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, but then they turn and they don't follow God's ways at all. You'd say, it would be crazy. The story, the illustration, we've all heard the, the surgeon. If you've got to have a surgeon for a critical surgery that you have and you have the option to have a great Christian who's a lousy surgeon or the opposite, you're going to say, give me the good surgeon. Even though he or she is not a believer, I'll take the good surgeon because that at this point is what's most critical. So I certainly would suggest that we would love to have that. As we look at this, I would simply say this, be careful that we not listen and ask anybody, much less the president candidate, presidential candidates, are you a Christian? Don't ever take that they are or not based on their response. They say they are because that doesn't mean that they are. Whether on the side of this particular election, is there fruit in one and the other, is there fruit? You look at both and you say, is it truly Appropriate. And by the way, uh, not, to, not to be negative here uh, simply, but I just want us to be smart people and not to, not to listen to everything we hear and assume like the evangelical church now is beginning to say, okay, let's drop, uh, let's, let's drop the uh, uh, Mormonism from the list of cults because now it's kind of so accepted and so forth. I did a study of Mormonism this week just for my own personal interest and I'm again just staggered how horrendously wrong and inappropriate and terrible that that is. It, it truly should not be in the Christian uh, camp. It really shouldn't be. But uh, so please, it's not just, are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, good. Check that one off. No, look for the fruit. Do you see evidence of that? But then more importantly, the evidence being the application of biblical truth to their life and experience. Number two, he must serve the interest of God alone. Verse 16 reads like this. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And so there were to be no alliances with those who differed in standard from the biblical ones. I think we need to ask the question of our candidate, what kind of people would that this person or does this person put around him? What kind of uh, alliances and beliefs and the people, well, you know, what is the position that they hold in those arenas? Number three, he must be a person of high morals and integrity. We look at verse uh, 17, it reads like this, that he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. 
Character is important. When you hear people say, oh, it's a private matter, don't believe the lie of the world. Character is a very important matter. This person is not to be dominated by lusts or pleasure, possessions or power. We need to be asking the question, from my best judgment, why do I think this person really wants to be the president of the United States? In fact, my personal opinion is anybody who says, I want to be the president of the United States is not thinking smart. <laughs> and, and probably not speaking, thinking with good, good motives because they should be saying, I don't want to. Why would anybody want to? Unless it was for power or greed or position or so forth. But I'm called of God and that's my only reason that I would want to do it. Number four, and here's where I want to camp just a little bit longer and very important. The law of God revealed in the Bible must be his governing principle for all things, both public and and private. Verses 18 through 20. Let me read it. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. There are so many things that we could dig into that. But I want to make this very practical and helpful at this point. And, and um, so some things will, you know, I just can't jump into this in full. But I want to leave you with four suggestions. Uh, they're questions that I think that we need to ask. They're not exhaustive, but these four, I think, give you a, a framework to begin with. Very simple. Number one, does he understand the God-given role of government? Does he understand the God-given role of government? The primary responsibility of government from what we have from Scripture, is found in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And there we see it's fairly simple. It's to restrain evil men. It is to protect the righteous. Is it wrong for a government to do anything beyond that? Not if the government chooses to do. This is not a theocracy. It's not a, a monarchy of God, under God-ordained monarchy. So therefore, yes, the government can, but we know that the government has that responsibility as we understand in Scripture. There are some myths that most of us certainly have already seen through, but a lot of us new to the things of the Lord and, and so forth, uh, or to politics, may not be aware. So let me just crash these myths. The separation of church and state, certainly it's simply saying one should never run the other. The Danbury letter that was written that had separation of church and state was written with the ideal of saying what we would believe, saying one should not run the other. It never had to do that the two should never connect. One can invite the other in and should in all kinds of cases and situations, but never in an authority leadership role, never to be that way. The other is to say that government cannot legislate morality. Are you kidding me? I mean, there may be some, but show me laws that don't in some way, that don't in some way legislate someone's morality and so we should never say oh no the morality issue should be out of it not at all therefore i think we need to be looking at this issue and that is what is the candidate's position on criminal justice where would they stand on that issue a second question that we could ask is is the candidate pro morality this would be a second major uh, area here what about the areas of pro morality their own personal morality and integrity needs to be looked at. Uh, their uh, stances on the issues of sexuality, how do they stand according to what the Bible teaches? We've taught that here through the years. Um, 
their stance on social justice. Where do they stand in that arena of the issues of social justice? And you, you get your best understanding you can. Try to figure that out. Number three, is the candidate pro-life? Uh, this would be, what is their stance on life issues, whether it be abortion, euthanasia, infanticide? Where does the candidate stand? What is their stance on national defense? Uh, where do they land on helping the poor? Not only what is their compassion for the poor, but what is their plan to do so? Do you think it's an appropriate and healthy plan? And what about health care? The same questions that have to do with health care. I will say this, that I think we've just struck there the most important issues of all, particularly the one about life. Um, many of you have read the quote that's kind of been going around a lot, Billy Graham, his last kind of political quote, I guess, but, but he's just basically saying to the church and to his people, in his opinion, the issues of life and family are the highest a priority. Larry Burkett himself, and many of you know that name, a great Christian leader in the area of Christian finance and biblical understanding of that truth now with the Lord. But he said, I would never place saving the economy above protecting the unborn. I would save the unborn and kill the economy if that were the only choice. I have to agree. We're talking about the hardcore issue of life at that point. Number, um, number four question, is the candidate pro-family? What is their definition of the family as it relates to the Scripture, as you would understand it from Scripture? And then to what degree is their defense for that family structure? Critically important. I know there are many areas I could put in some of these categories, but, you know, they're kind of not, you know, placed well there, whether it be education or immigration, what's their position there, economic policies, certainly their stance on deficit. Uh, their commitment to allies, our uh, national allies that have been and should be our allies. Those are issues that all need to be considered. Now, because this seems so big, I want to make this simple to you. So I'm sitting in my office working on the message this week, and I had an idea. I said, when I come to a hard choice, I come up with what I call a decision-making metrics. Many of you have used something like this. And you simply make the decision because one of the things we don't want to do is to let us vote by our heart. I hope we're not voting by our heart. I hope we're voting by our head. And you say, oh, I think the heart's far more important. That's where I vote. I vote from my heart what I feel. That's what I'm voting for. Well, if you're a parent, let me ask you, do you want your child to vote for who they're going to date and marry based on their heart or by their head? I want my children to use the head, right? I want there to be hard in it. But I'm telling you, you better think right. Say, oh, I love this person. I feel good about this person. Well, they're a druggie. They're about to, you know, rob a bank next week and so and so and such. Oh, but I don't know. My heart says right person. I said, well, think with your head, right? So we ought to be thinking with our head. So this kind of forces us to get some head into the process. I'm going to put up something you cannot read. I don't intend you to read. But you can either now or later You've got a, a smartphone or whatever, utilize it if you like, but you can go to perimeter.org slash pope and you'll see this. I've put a number, this, is this, this word over here on this big column is category. And I've put basically all the things I just mentioned in a list here. 
may have left out a few. Uh, you may have things you want to put on that list. You may look at some of these and say, I take that off the list. I don't even think it's an issue. Fine. I'm not, I, don't want, I don't want you writing me. In fact, I don't really want anybody writing me this week. But, but, <laughs> but I don't want you to say, well, I don't think. And I think, why did you put that one down here? It should have been up there. These are not in priority. I just, as I sat there, I just listed them very quickly. And I said, let's just have a picture of this. Then what you do, this little column here, this second column, is importance. And so you, between one and a 10 is what I do. Now you're going to say, how do I weigh the importance of this? How much do I value this as important versus one of the others? So you might have one of them, which has to do with, let's say, the economy, maybe a five for some of us, versus a uh, life, might be a 10, you know, the protection of life, whatever. As you see it biblically, as you think this is what's very important, you just put down the value that you would place one to 10. Then you take one of the candidates and you take the candidate, there are actually three on the ballot, I know you can do it with three, but you take candidate A and you say, okay, which one of these, uh, each one of these, what would I put from a one to 10 as I would rate them in strength? One meaning that, or zero meaning, man, they just don't have that at all. They're just missing that fully. Versus a 10 would say they got it nailed, biblically speaking, and not all these are in biblical issues. So whatever you do, you put it there. Then you just multiply these two numbers and you get their score. And then you add it up at the bottom, you get a score. Then you take the next candidate, do the same thing. You give them a one to a 10. You multiply the value times their rating and you come up with their number, add it up, and you look at the two and say, okay, it seems, now if they're just neck to neck, one of, I wouldn't let one or two numbers change that, but you're gonna see this is gonna be in the hundreds when you get up to the number and you'll probably see a difference between the two. And if you do say, that's, that's really where, if I'm thinking biblically as best as I know how, to the degree I know the candidates, to as much as I'm aware and accurate, this is really where I should be voting. Now, having said all of that, I think the, the real issue is the bigger story. And I hope we can end with the bigger story. This stuff, I hope I can help you by us just thinking with a biblical world and life view. I hope the teaching of this church through the years has given you a, a position of what you would hold on these things. We don't need a, a series right now to teach them. No, this should be the long haul. Now we do our work and we decide where do we vote. But the bigger picture, this is a text that was given to the people of God in the Old Testament known as Israel. And they needed leadership. And God says we're moving from theocracy to a God-ordained monarchy. I've chosen my leader, now you be responsible and you choose the right person. Because that right person is going to be the lineage of our Savior. And that Savior is the one who now has given his life for our redemption as Christians. So that now we're called out of one world to be a citizen of another world to be positioned in this world as its citizen so that we might affect the good of this world. Always with the gospel mentality. Not just so, oh, good, people can live and die and perish, but at least they lived good. No, it's we want them to live good. We want all people to live as well as possible. 
But there's a bigger kingdom in mind. And yes, we have a, a leader to our little kingdom here called America. But that's not our king. Our king came from this text. And through David, we've been given now a lineage, one that would sit on the throne and now sits in the heavenlies on his throne. Christian, he's reigning right now. And so, okay, you choose one person and that person loses on Tuesday. Well, folks, yeah, the, the little king isn't who we choose. But you can't forget the big king has been chosen. And he's been chosen by our father. And that king is reigning on our behalf to protect us and to care for us and to take all of history and to navigate it in such a way that it culminates in the perfect plan. So how can we say, oh, no, the plan of God is gone. It's not gone. It just takes us in a different route. Even as so many of us that have had to go through, oh, I want good health, and God says the plan's going to take you into poor health. I want marriage. And his plan says, I'm taking you into singleness. I want this. And God says, well, that's not the plan. Who thinks for a minute we're going to enter into eternity and say, oh, Lord, that didn't turn out too good, did it? We're going to say, well done, God. Perfect plan. And so one thing we can all have on Wednesday morning, we can have peace. And we can say the king reigns and God's plan is in place. And with that, we got nothing to lose. All we want to do is be faithful. And we want to strive for the well-being of our country and our fellow man. But remember, always with the motive to propagate the gospel. And therefore, I would hope that every one of us here are not just thinking, how do we get the right king? But how do we get the right people that God's put in my life to be subject to the great king? When that becomes our heart passion, then we're the citizens God's called us to be. I pray for us all that we'll be wise in the decisions we make. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to be faithful to the call that you've given us as citizens of this land. Forgive us where we've let one little issue rule in our whole thinking, where we have been biased towards something or someone that's not based on your truth and what you've told us, but simply because this is what we feel or want. God calls us to be wise. But the bigger picture, Father, more importantly, I just pray, may we be a kingdom people here who think so biblically and so rightly that when we wake up Wednesday morning, we smile because you are reigning as always. Thank you for your marvelous plan. We're going to trust you for that. Even bless us now. May you be honored. You are the one. And we pray in his name, our Savior Jesus. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.